Hey there, humanoids. This is David Shoemaker here with a very exciting announcement. Your favorite wrestling podcast feed, The Ringer Wrestling Show, is now going daily. And you can hang out with me and Kaz on Mondays and Thursdays for The Masked Man Show. And you can join me, Peter Rosenberg, alongside stack guy Greg and Dip every Tuesday with Cheap Heat. And on Fridays, I'll welcome a friend or special guest from the world of wrestling. And on Wednesdays, we have a very special new show called Wednesday Worldwide that you're going to want to check out. Pay-per-view reaction, one-of-a-kind interviews, fantasy booking, talking about bagels. That's what we do here on the Ringer Wrestling Show. Follow the show now on Spotify and do us a favor. Give us five stars. And do us another favor and uh, stay mage. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome into Off the Pike and welcome into our TV audience on the local angle on FanDuel TV. Joining us now from The Ringer, The Ringer Fantasy Football Show, The Ringer NFL Draft Show, puts out the great draft guide for The Ringer as well. It is Danny Kelly. Danny, thanks so much for taking some time, man. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right, so I wanted to start by, well, I wanted to have you on to talk about some of these young guys for the Patriots, but of course, we get the big news that Ezekiel Elliott is coming to the Patriots, and that was the <laughs> yeah. big news for the team this week. Not a lot of faith in the Kevin Harris's of the world, the PR Strong's of the world, who weren't exactly impressive during training camp and their first action in preseason, but yeah. I like the Zeke thing. I mean, some of the stuff I look at, you look at the third and short numbers, one to three yards to go. 18 first downs last season. That was tied for the most in the league. He was second in touchdowns in the red zone at 12. His percentage of touchdowns rushing inside the 10 was 41.7%. That was tied for six with Jalen Hurts. So these are really good numbers. <laughs> and you kind of juxtapose him to Damian Harris. And look, the Patriots, of course, had a bad offensive line. Dallas had a good offensive line. But if you just look at something that he controls, the missed tackles force, it was last year... 30 of them for Zeke, which was 25th. Harris was at 10th, and that was or that was 58th out of 59 guys. So, and like yeah. I said, all the stuff that goes into this, the offensive line and whatnot. But I do feel like if you, the other element to this, I advocated earlier this offseason, Danny, like, okay, let's just feed Ramondre 300 carries, like, let's do it. But then you also look at the fact, well, what if Ramondre goes down? There wasn't a lot behind right. him, so that's certainly part of it. And the other element to me is, well, then he has doesn't have to do all the tough 
carries, right? Where it's like third and one, you have one of the best short yardage running backs in the NFL. So I think this is a perfect fit for the Patriots. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, and this is the classic Bill Belichick move too, I think, just because Zeke is in a lot of ways a, a coach's dream. I mean, he pass blocks, he's really reliable, he doesn't fumble, um, you know, kind of a lot of the things that you, that you hear uh, Belichick talk about all the time, just like a coach's dream type of guy who's just going to do his job. You know, it's a cliche, but he really is that that type of player. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's I think Mondre is still going to be the clear cut, you know, starter for for the Patriots. But um, having a guy like Zeke who can come in, be a little bit of insurance and and like you said, do the dirty work on short yardage and in the goal line area. Um, it just makes a ton of sense for the Patriots. I think it's a really smart signing. Yeah, I love it. It just felt like it was a matter of time before it was going to happen. We saw him and Mac went out to dinner, so it felt like, okay, <laughs> Delvin Cook and Zeke eventually are going to sign with the Patriots and the Jets. It was just a matter of time until it happened, so it's good they got him in the building, and knock on wood, nothing happens to Ramondre, but you still, it's a really nice one-two punch for a team that's going to have to rely on their running game. Then I look at the other news we got this week, which is Mike Gusecki. He's now dealing with a shoulder injury. They're hoping to get him back for week one. But one of the things I was thinking about with Gusecki is it did really feel like, and this has been going on for a few years now, Danny, the Patriots wanted to use that 12 personnel. The problem was Mm. you couldn't really justify keeping Jonu Smith on the field because he wasn't a really good player. (laughs) And you look at Gusecki, Right. right? I mean, this is a guy that two years ago before he fell out of favor and it just didn't work out in Mike McDaniel's offense. Second most snaps in the slot two years ago, right? So they were going to go with these two tight ends. And I do feel like, all right, this is not a great receiving group that the Patriots have. So they probably prefer to try to go 12 personnel rather than have the three receivers on the field to try to, okay, maybe we get a scheme advantage here. So I do feel like I understand that there's hope that he's going to be back for week one, but it really is difficult now going forward to game plan or put stuff together with Mike Isecki building chemistry with Mac, yeah. it did feel like this is the one thing that maybe they felt like they had an advantage with. And now it does feel like even though he may be ready for the start of the season, this is kind of a big blow for just putting the work in, getting ready for the season. Yeah, and he's a very unique player, you know. I mean, there's just not a lot of guys with his length, um, his size, his speed, explosiveness, catch radius. Um, I've been a Mike Kosicki fan for a long time, actually. I thought it was kind of a bummer last year when the Dolphins didn't really utilize him very much in their offense. He was sort of an afterthought. and so. I was excited to see him sign it in New England. I think, you know, it's, it seems like they had a pretty big plan for him. Um, he is, you know, a de facto receiver. I think he's not really a tight end um, when yeah. you talk about like his blocking ability and things like that. But, but yeah, I think, um, you know, he has a chance to hopefully he gets back early and, and you, you know, like isn't too long of a ramp up period to get him back into the offense. But I do think he has a potential to have a pretty, pretty big role. You know, he's a big target in the middle of the field. He's a really good red zone guy in the sense that you can kind of just throw it up in his direction and he tends to come down with it. He's got, he's got some run after the catch ability. Um, if you go back to, you know, when he came out of the draft, he was one of the most uh, athletic tight ends we've ever seen in terms of just yeah. like his jumping, leaping ability. I think he's a former volleyball guy, you know, so he has a very unique skill set. And I was excited to see uh, the ways in which, you know, the Patriots could utilize that. Hopefully they'll still do that this year, even though he is injured right now. And Bill O'Brien finally gets to use him because he recruited him all the way back in the day at Penn State. They <laughs> yeah, finally reunited. Yeah. They're going to get the opportunity. So we'll see. Hopefully it's not too long, but I do feel like they're going to miss out on this time sort of building chemistry with that offense. Now, I wanted to get to Mac because you wrote back in 2020 that you would have been more excited if the Patriots had traded up to take Justin Field instead of waiting for Mac to fall in their laps at 15. I felt the same way at the time. I just feel like the upside for Fields and 
What we've seen, recent history tells us, the guys with the tools, like the toolsy quarterbacks, they're hitting at a higher rate than these prototypical old-school pocket passers like Mac Jones. So one of the things I look at is, okay, well, then he needs to be helped by the scheme, which last year, that was the opposite, right? I mean, they had arguably (laughs) the worst scheme in the NFL. And you look at it, last season, he had just 19 total dropbacks out of RPOs, 4.3%, 16 Mm. completions, but minus 33 air yards, 97 total yards, right? Like they didn't have an RPO game whatsoever. Everything was behind the line of scrimmage. And you look at some of these other quarterbacks that came out of uh, Alabama, Jalen Hurts, 69 dropbacks, two of 43. And the reason I do this is because they all came from similar offenses. And then I look at Bryce Young last year with Bill O'Brien, 14.2% of his dropbacks compared to Mack at, like I said, 4.3%. And we know Mack at Alabama, 890 yards via RPOs, 10 touchdowns, no picks. I mean, all you have to do is look at that Notre Dame game in the semifinals where he was absolutely outstanding. But I have to imagine that this is something, and maybe with some of the concern with this offensive line that the Patriots may have, that Bill O'Brien is going to almost have to dig into this RPO game, which I think could be a blessing in disguise in some sense. Like, Mac Jones is actually good at this, and they haven't taken advantage of it really since he came to the NFL. Yeah, I mean, and that's the mark of a good offensive coordinator slash play caller, right? Like, putting your players in position to succeed, doing what they like to do, what they're very good at, and what they're comfortable doing. And so, you know, last year, just nothing really made sense with the decision-making in terms of how they ran that offense. Um, Obviously, the hope is that they get you know, they get back on track here with Bill O'Brien and, um, you know, he, he definitely gets the most out of Mac Jones. I, it, Mac, it's funny to say because he, they're not similar players, but Jones kind of reminds me a little bit of Tua, um, in just like quick processor, get the ball out, get the, get it to, you know, your playmakers, let them do the work. And, and I think, you know, at his best, that's what he can be. That's the type of quarterback he can be is just like distribute the football, get the ball out, um, make the right, uh, reads and right choices with the football and, and you're good to go. And so, in some ways, Tua and Mac are similar. Obviously, they came from similar systems at Alabama. And so um, the hope is, you know, with that quick processing speed, we can see some more of that with Mac Jones this year. Where it's just like, you know, hitting his back foot, getting the ball out. Yeah, and that's what we saw with Tua. You're right. Like, Tua last year was really helped by Mike McDaniel. And we'll see if Bill O'Brien yeah. can have a similar effect on the effect that Mike McDaniel had for Tua. But I wanted to get to just more on Mac. This is kind of a loaded question. But as somebody that knows these <laughs> quarterbacks coming out of the collegiate level better than anybody you look at this and the so we get the news Anthony Richardson is starting for the Colts and then you had in that same draft Bryce Young CJ Stroud who we saw in the preseason game last week and then I go back to 2022 the only first round pick was Kenny Pickett so out of those four guys if you were going to bet on it in terms of having a better career how many guys out of that group do you think Mac will have a better career then oh man that's a really good question so you're talking about the guys from this class Last class. Yeah, and I'll throw Pickett in there from the 2022 class. So it's those four guys, like the the three first rounders this past year, and then Kenny Pickett. Yeah, it's tough because the last two classes with the quarterbacks, there's just been a lot of question marks with everybody. You know, with um, Bryce Young, it's obviously the size is a huge, huge impediment to his potential success, and he'd be an extreme outlier, you know, among all quarterbacks. And then with Stroud, it's like he's a little too robotic. And um, I'd say Mac Jones is kind of on that Stroud spectrum in terms of this style i think he's a you know mainly a pocket quarterback but can kind of move around a little more athletic than you think and so um i'm still pretty bullish honestly on mac jones i know that there's Hmm. you know some question marks about 
I guess like just his relationship with the team, his relationship with the coaching staff. I think there's still some like yeah. uncertainty there. Um, but I think, you know, like I said, with with Mac, it's like if he gets in a system that he's comfortable in and, you know, he's getting the ball out quickly, I think he's got a really high, really high floor. Um, I, he might not have as high of a ceiling, I think, as um, like, for instance, Anthony Richardson. I think his ceiling is absolutely sky high. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, like I think Jones can still be a mid middle of the pack to slightly above average style quarterback. You know what I mean? Like not necessarily a guy that's going to completely elevate the offense but a guy that can run it efficiently and, you know, distribute the football and ultimately like put together a good offense. And so um, I think gifts wise, like he's, he's probably a little bit more gifted than, than Kenny Pickett um, in ter- terms of just his overall skill set. Um, and I think like put him right up against like Stroud in terms of just like the type of quarterback he could be. So, um, you know, I know I'm kind of sidestepping the question where, where could he end up? But I, I will say I, I'm pretty bullish on Mac Jones still. I still think he can be a really good pro. Yeah. And after 2021, I think we all felt the same way, right? It's yeah, like, okay, yeah. now it, it got a little dicey at the end of the season, but I thought he was one of the only guys that showed up him and Kendrick Bourne to that Bills playoff game. Like the rest of the Patriots did not play particularly well. And you just look at the difference and I don't think anybody thinks that Josh McDaniels is this unbelievable offensive coordinator, right? I mean, you look at all the offenses that he's had without Tom Brady. Really, the only other one that was successful was the one with Mac Jones. So, I mean, it just kind of tells you that, like, okay, even when he just had a competent offensive coordinator, he played pretty well. So hopefully going from the worst coordinator situation in the NFL to Bill O'Brien, we see a little bit better version of what we got in 2021. So I'm glad to hear you say that you're that you're bullish on Mac because I want to have an interesting season and Mac's going to have to be a large part of that. All right. So I do want to get to some of these other young guys because Christian Gonzalez right now slotted as, of course, the Patriots number one corner in your draft guide. You had this pick as an A plus. You had shades of A.J. Terrell. And I went back to that 2021 season, Terrell's like best year in the NFL, third ranked corner via pro football focus, second in coverage grade via pro football focus. Completion percentage against was 43.9, which was first. The passer rating against was second. So this comp has me really excited about Christian Gonzalez. <laughs> what we've seen, just the flashes, I'm really excited about Christian Gonzalez. So what made that the comp for you and how good do you think he could be in his rookie season? I just think the overall skill set, size, um, competitiveness, you know, length, versatility to I think play in both like zone and man, ball skills, things like that. It just kind of, he just, to me, has like a whole tool set. He has pretty much everything you're looking for. He's an elite athlete. He's still young. Um, I think with Gonzalez, it was really surprising to me that he fell to where he fell. Like I, I, I felt that the Patriots got an absolute steal getting him where they got him. Um, I don't know if it's just because he plays for Oregon is maybe not part of one of the bigger schools or whatever, but he fell a little bit further than I thought. Um, and it was, it's been nice to hear that he's been from what I've heard, like tearing it up at camp and looking like a really, really good player, um, day one starter type of player. And so, um, yeah, to me, when I think of Christian Gonzalez, when I'm picturing just watching him on tape, he's just really sticky in coverage, really instinctive with body positioning. Um, you know, almost effortless at times where he's just getting in a guy's hip pocket and following him down the field knows exactly when uh, to stop. And he's kind of like running the route for the receiver. So um, when I picture Christian Gonzalez, it's like pretty much all the uh, types of elite traits that you really want at the, at the cornerback position. So I'm super excited about what he can do. And of course he, like I said, he's got great length, elite athleticism uh, and, you know, with the history of what the Patriots done have, have done with their 
defensive backs. Like I'm just really bullish on what he could do long-term too. So um, I thought that was a steal for them uh, and you know, where they got him. Yeah. I give them a lot of credit for that because obviously they read the board correctly. Right. Because I was looking at it at the time. I wanted Jackson Smith and Jigba, but then like the two real needs for this team were receiver, which were never really addressed. Like they don't have a number one guy. I guess (laughs) Juju is going to be masquerading as that, but it was receiver, it was offensive tackle, and it was corner. Of course, the offensive tackle situation is still a question with this team, but corner is a need that they've had for a while after they let J.C. Jackson go, which turns out to be the right move for the Patriots. J.C. Jackson has been dealing with all these injuries, but they definitely nailed that at 17, moving down, getting an extra asset, if you will, as well. The other guy they picked high is Keon White, and the one preseason game, and I know it's preseason, but he certainly flashed, chasing down Stroud on a third down, and he forced Mills out of the pocket on a different play. You described him as big, twitchy pass rusher with inside-outside versatility. And watching last week, big and twitchy definitely describe White. Now, <laughs> we know we know he's a bit raw just because he was at, what, Old Dominion, and he's playing nope. tight end, converts to defensive end, and then he transfers to Georgia Tech. So I understand there's still some rawness to his game. But as yep. a rookie, and this is a good defense that the Patriots have, how much do you think he contribute? Like, do you think he's somebody that we're going to be seeing making splash plays throughout the season? Or do you think it's going to be more of a sit back and wait type of role? I mean, I would guess that they use him as a rotational guy. You know, he's like I said, he's got the inside outside versatility. He's got great size, great length. You know, he always kind of screamed Patriot style defender to me, too, just because, you know, they love the versatility. They love a type of guy who, um, you know, just brings that length of defensive line, really disruptive. He was, to me, just such an interesting prospect because, like you said, he's a little bit raw, and I can understand a little bit why he fell. Um, and the combination of being raw and a little bit older as a prospect is is not necessarily the, the best thing. It's not exactly what you're looking for. Um, but, you know, athleticism-wise, he's super twitchy, very strong. We saw that he can bend a little bit. And so, you know, from my perspective, I think it would make a lot of sense for them to rotate him in, get him in on some pass rush looks. Um, I think he's a solid run defender. Like, he can set an edge. You know, he's a big, powerful guy. So, um, you know, I don't know exactly how, how the, the rotation is going to work out for the Patriots. But to me, he seems like an impact guy from, from day one. I mean, we saw that in the preseason game, you know, high effort. I, the thing I love about him, too, is, man, you saw him on, on draft day. He was so pissed that he <laughs> fell. He was yeah. just like stewing. Um, and you can't, he, he, he has that chip on his shoulder, man. Like he looked really mad when he got, when he got drafted, where he got drafted. I think he thought he deserved to be a first rounder. And I did too. I had him ranked 29th. Um, so again, another great value for the Patriots. I thought the Patriots draft was really good, by the way. Um, you know, they just, they, they seem to find pockets of value at, at all their picks. And so, um, yeah, to me, he seems like a day one impact guy. Yeah. You had them as an A, right? The Pats draft as an A. Yeah. Um, you know, again, it's like, there's always the talk of Belichick doesn't know what he's doing, um, in terms of the being a GM, obviously as a coach, it's pretty, uh, you know, he, he's got that track record, but like the GM, I think he's a really good GM too, honestly. Um, you know, he's, he's certainly had his misses as all GMs do, but like this draft in particular, it's like, you're finding pockets of value. You're, you're letting the board fall to you. And I thought, you know, um, they got premium positions in, in corner and pass rusher, uh, really like later than I expected they would. So yeah, kudos to them. Well, yeah. And you mentioned the fact that you had Keon White at 29, the Patriots, they were considering taking him at 17 if Christian Gonzalez didn't fall. So the fact that they turn around and get him in the second round and look, Bill has hit on a lot of these defensive players over the past few years. I mean, Uche had his breakout season last year. It took a little bit of a 
little bit of a wait for Uche to get there, but he was really good last season. Duggar looks like an absolute stud who hopefully they give him a contract extension. And then there's Christian Barmore, who maybe this is the big year for him after battling an injury last year, which brings me to this defense in general, because you go back to this past or last season, I should say, the scoring percentage against was at 30.5%. Opponents only scored on 30.5% of their drives. That was second to only the San Francisco 49ers. Now, mm. the big issue the Patriots had is these number one receivers would come into Foxborough or they would play the Patriots and they'd have these big games because the Patriots didn't have the legitimate bona fide corner. So with the fact that Christian Gonzalez has this high pedigree coming into his first season in the NFL, now we'll have to see what happens with the Jack Jones situation. We'll find out more about that on Friday when he's due back in court. But what's the ceiling? Like, is could this be the number one defense? Is the ceiling the top three? Is it top five? Like, is there a world where the Patriots could actually be the best defense in the NFL? Or is that too much? No, I think that's I think that's fair. Honestly, you know, um, Defense, interestingly, is is not sticky year over year. As, uh, certainly not as much as offense, you know. Um, I think a big part of that is because quarterback has such a huge influence on, like, how good an offense is. And so when you're talking about efficiency and we're talking about, you know, EPA and all that, it's much more sticky for offense to be good year over year versus a defense. Um, so that means basically, like, I, putting them at possible number one defense, like, that's not wild to me. Like, you know, they've got the pieces. Um, Love it. Obviously, they've got the coaches, and I really like. It seems like their rookie class could, you know, be contributing year one. Like their first three picks, basically, uh, could be you know contributors on that side of the ball. And so, um, you know, they improve the depth. They improve uh, certainly a, a really important position in terms of corner. If Christian Gonzalez can get in and play like I think he can, you know, that could be a really big, big uh, variable. Like look at look at last year. You know, you have Sauce Gardner, Tariq Woolen. Two of the two best rookie corners, like both of those guys, legitimately changed their defenses for the better. Yeah. Like obviously with with Sauce, I think he he made a bigger impact, um, just because you know he he essentially just it's like you're helping out your pass rush by giving your guys a little bit more time. Um, obviously creating turnovers is a huge deal, um, and so like Christian Gonzalez could have a massive massive impact, and that could be like the thing that puts them over the top. Yeah, I can't wait to see him playing like actual NFL games, not just the preseason, because yeah. it's going to be fun to watch. Now, what have you made of this Malik Cunningham hype? Like yeah. he's getting snaps with the first team and I know it's only five snaps, but I, I wonder, like, do you think this is, hey, let's just, hey, let's see what we have here. Or is this more like, hey, Jalen Hurts, we're playing him in week one. Like this is a good way to get because a lot of these reps he's getting are against the first team defense. So I have to imagine, it's look, that's part of the calculus with this, too. But hey, you might as well find out what you have with Malik Cunningham, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and everything that you hear about him is he's super, super competitor. Um, you know, like he's put together right in, from a you know personality point of view, confidence point of view. Um, I got to see him a little bit at the Senior Bowl. Uh, he got, I, I believe he was a late call up. So he showed up a little bit late because there was an injury at the position and, and he was pretty impressive at times, you know, obviously he is uh, a dual, like more on the dual threat spectrum, obviously, like they're, if they're going to use him it maybe they'll bring him in for packages, use him as a runner. He's very athletic, very twitchy fast. Um, but he also, you know, shows that he can throw a little bit. I think he, in, in that preseason game, he had like what should have been a touchdown pass yeah. like on the, on the move. Um, obviously this is coming like late in the game. And, you know, you're probably playing a bunch of future, you know, insurance salesmen or whatever. But, um, you know, that that caveat can apply to pretty much every preseason game. I'm still impressed with what he did. And, and obviously, you know, from 
all indications are the team really likes him and is very intrigued with him. And that's why he's getting first, uh, you know, first team reps. I, I, I would guess right now they're going to use him in packages to kind of just like make the make opposing teams just prepare for that. You know what I mean? Like it's just more practice time dedicated to like the, the read option stuff, the, the Malik Cunningham packages or whatever. Like that's, that's good for the Patriots. And so that would be my guess. I, I feel like Belichick, you probably could answer this better than I could. Like Belichick's always kind of wanted a guy like that who could really like make it hard on a defense. And, and that's, you know, maybe that's something that he can, they can get out of him in just small pieces. Well, and remember the one Jacoby Brissett start where just like against the Texans, it was a short week on a Thursday night and he just went off. Like they just ran it with him and yeah, they yeah. ended up shutting out the Texans in that game. So yeah, certainly would be interesting to see what, the, what Malik Cunningham like does this season for the team. Obviously he's getting opportunities at receiver as well, which does bring me to this receiver group because yeah, it's interesting. They go out, they sign Juju, they get him over Jacoby Myers, which I, I like the move just because he does stuff after the catch, something that Jacoby Myers doesn't really do. And unfortunately, yeah. I know Mac and Jacoby have good chemistry and all that, but I think Juju's a little bit of an upgrade there. But then you look at the rest of this group. Parker, last three seasons, last in next-gen separation stat. He's more of a yeah. contested catch guy. They gave him the extension. Kendrick Bourne was in the doghouse last year after I thought he was outstanding in 2021. He has not exactly had the best training camp. There's Tyquan Thornton, your second round pick from a couple of years ago. Didn't get much out of him as a rookie. He dealt with an injury as mm -hmm. well. Now, Demario Pop Douglas has popped. I mean, not to be repetitive there, but he's had like <laughs> a really interesting training camp where mm -hmm. people already have him pegged in to be that fourth receiver. I thought that maybe that was going to be Kayshawn Booty, the guy with the high upside and had some injuries, some issues at LSU, but flashed there. I look at this group, though, like outside of Juju, I don't know how much dependability you can have with these receivers. How concerned yeah. would you be about this receiving group, especially how we started this with the Gusecki situation as well? Yeah, I mean, if you include Gusecki, I, that certainly helps as, uh, you know, if you include him as a receiver, quote unquote, a receiver. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, if not to mince, uh, you don't want to mince things like this is probably one of the worst receiving groups in the NFL right now. Yeah. Um, there's certainly some upside. I like, it's very interesting to hear what we've heard about Demario Douglas in terms of, you know, just twitchy, explosive separating. Um, those are all things you'd expect from a guy who's, you know, 170 pounds or whatever he is, whatever he weighed in at. Um, you know, it's good to hear that booty has seemed to come on over the last couple of weeks in terms of like, he obviously got off to a really slow start. There was some talk that he might not even make the team. It seems like he's impressed at least a little bit more over the last couple of weeks and, and might've won himself a, a job. Um, at least as a depth guy. So there is some, you know, intrigue there. And I think if Tyquan Thornton can make a big leap in year two, you know, that's definitely going to be a big, big deal for them. But yeah, like at the end of the day, this this pass catching group does not look super promising, at least based on what we've seen already. And so um, that was why I think it is such a big deal that, that Kaseki got hurt because he was like kind of the, you know, a, a veteran guy that they could really utilize as like a mismatch creator. Now, I don't really know if they have that, like Devontae Parker, not a mismatch creator. Uh, Juju Smith-Schuster is more of just like a, you know, slot receiver that can do a little bit uh, yards after the catch, but I don't know if he's like a big time difference maker. And so, um, yeah, I guess at the end of the day, is, is there a big difference maker in this group? I don't know. It, it, I, someone's going to have to break out for that to be the case. 
Yeah, did you like Thornton coming out when he was coming out of Baylor? I know, like, the crazy speed. I mean, I was excited about it just because it's a receiver. But, I mean, yeah. I was talking to my buddy the other day, Andrew Callahan from the Herald, and it's like we realized that George Pickens went right before him and the Steelers draft receiver as well. But <laughs> were you high yeah. on Thornton coming out, or did you think, okay, there's kind of limitations with this game, just more of like a vertical threat that there was going to have to be yeah. a lot of work done there? I thought I was actually quite intrigued with him. You know, obviously the big question is size. He's super skinny, very, very skinny. Um, and every year that goes by, I feel like that matters less in the NFL. We've seen that, you know, um, Devonte Smith, that was a big talking point when he came out, like he, he's been fine. And Tyquan Thornton has like a similar body type, I think as, as Devonte Smith in terms of like spindly long, you know, long levered guys that can, um, you know, we saw his, his catch radius in this last preseason game. Like he went up, skied up and, and I'm talking about Thornton. He went up and skied up and caught a pass on the sideline like that catch radius and, and um, length can really make up for the lack of bulk at, at receiver. And so obviously Thornton's got the speed, um, but you know, he's got to stay healthy and, and that's a big deal. I think overall, like I'm, I'm still intrigued with him. I'm, I'm excited. Like his, his college numbers were really, you know, encouraging. Um, and obviously paired with the fact that he has that elite speed, you know, kind of makes him an intriguing guy. But at the end of the day, like, again, I don't know if he's a difference maker. I think he's, he can play a certainly play a role in an offense and be like a big play stretch the defense type of guy. But I don't know if he is, you know, a difference maker, you know, from that point of view. So, um, you know, again, like I I am bullish on him a little bit, but you know, he has to stay healthy is the main thing. And and that, that frame is really why you worry about him staying healthy. Yeah. The big thing for me with him, Danny is just, I keep convincing myself that, well, Hey, Bill O'Brien, he had Will Fuller. He took advantage of having Will Fuller. Can he do the same thing with Taekwon Thornton, even though, he hasn't had the camp that everybody would hope that he would have coming into this year where he had an opportunity. Like if you're going to crack into a receiving core, the Patriots, as we mentioned earlier, that's one of the easiest receiving cores to crack into. So if you don't crack yep. into it, that means there are some issues there. So I hope they get something out of him because to your point, he does bring something different to the table than yeah. maybe anybody of these other Patriots receivers do. All right, so hey, Danny, before we let you go, I want to get some fantasy takes from you. So, sure. Is there anybody that there is that you're higher on than the consensus right now? Like, is there a couple of guys that you think, okay, nobody, like th- these guys are getting underrated in the fantasy world? Are you talking about across the whole league or Patriots? Just Patriots. Well, top? we could go, we could go with Patriots and then maybe one or two across sure. the league. Um, one guy I think that actually is pretty underrated right now is Hunter Henry. You know, based mm-hmm. on all all the indications out of camp, like he is the starter. Um, like we talked about, like Gesicki is more of like a slot receiver. So it feels like Hunter Henry is going to be on the field quite a lot, you know? And the question of course is, is he going to be running routes? Is is he going to be catching passes? But he's done that in the past. Um, you know, he's a highly athletic guy. If he can stay healthy and be a little bit more consistent than he has in the past, I think he could be a sneaky value uh, at the tight end position where, you know, there's just a lot of, I think late round tight ends that could be good. And I think Hunter Henry definitely be- like belongs in that group of a guy who could surprise. Um, I mean, obviously love me some Ramondre Stevenson, but with Zeke now, you know, obviously him coming in and potentially vulturing a lot of goal line looks could make him uh, a value just from the fantasy point of view, because he's, he's so you know consistent in that short area. Um, the question of course, is how often the Patriots are going to get inside the deep red zone um but i think z could be a type of guy <laughs> who you know could provide some value there um but yeah and i think you know juju is another guy that's probably being underrated a little bit just because i think he's gonna get the volume you know he's not super exciting he's not super explosive 
but he could be, you know, a security blanket over the middle of the field for Mac Jones. Just a guy that gets a lot of targets, a lot of volume, and obviously that pays in half PPR and PPR. So, um, you know, those three guys mainly are, are who I'm looking at in, you know, in fantasy here. But um, I, I would love to see a guy like Tyquan Thornton break out too, you know. It'd just be really fun to see that. No doubt. No doubt. I can't I I can't wait for the season, man. Like the Patriots, like last season was so disappointing for them. And we can all point at what the main reason was, which was Matt Patricia running the offense and the fact that they have, <laughs> yeah. you know, they have Bill O'Brien in the building. Like it's going to be a difficult season for them, obviously, just based on the fact you have six games against the Jets, Dolphins and the Bills. And then you yeah. got the Eagles to open up the season. You also play a Dallas team that was good last season as well. And so it's a stacked schedule that you have. You get the Chiefs on the schedule. You get the Chargers on the schedule. So my fear is that the Patriots were going to look at it and say, okay, like everything looks better, but it's a similar record. Or maybe it's one game better. Maybe it's nine and eight instead of eight and nine. That's the one fear that I have. Like if they were playing Danny and say like the NFC South, I'd be like, okay, they could easily win this division. Like, who's <laughs> right. the best team in that division? Is it Atlanta? I know the Saints, I think, are favored. But, I mean, yeah. you look at this division, it's it's kind of crazy because for so many years, we lived in this Brady world where everybody in the division sucked. For, basically, there was, there was pockets, <laughs> right, where it's like, okay, right. the Jets are competing with you for two years. Even though they're not winning the division, they're going to the AFC title game with Rex Ryan and company. But then that flamed out like Sanchez turned out to be he was good for a couple of years. Not, I mean, not great, but you know what I'm saying is like, OK, yeah, they were yeah. competent. But other than that, there was no threat in the division. And when the Patriots are trying to like recover post Brady era, this is when all the teams in the division are good. <laughs> it's like unreal. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, you know, obviously the Bills have been a juggernaut in, in the division the last couple of seasons. The Dolphins seem to be ascending. And a lot depends on, of course, what happens with Tua this year. If he can stay healthy like they have a really high ceiling in terms of their offense and how many points they can score, how many yards they can put up. Um, and then, you know, the Jets are the Jets. I, I, I still don't know if I really buy into the Jets. Um, I think their defense is going to be really good. Um, I'm not 100% sure what this offense is going to look like with Aaron Rodgers. I think Aaron Rodgers has a chance to bounce back and, you know, return to MVP form, certainly. But, you know, there's just so many moving pieces. The offensive line isn't very good, um, or at least it's too many injuries on the offensive line to really depend on it. Um, you know, he's got to sort of learn his new receiver group here and make sure to get on the right page with them. And I think they're probably going to want to run the ball a lot. So um, I don't know. It, the Jets to me are a wild card, but yeah, you're right. This is a very tough division and you know, it, it's going to be tough to pass. Certainly the dolphins and the bills. And then I think the Jets are, you know, definitely a wild card there too. Yeah. It's going to be a crazy division. I, I'm not as high on the Jets either. Like if I was going to pick another team to threaten the Bills, win the division, I would pick Miami too. I think their defense yeah. is going to be way better. The fact that they bring in Vic Fangio after the mess that they had last year. And that like, yeah. it's not like the personnel was bad for Miami. It's just the scheme didn't really seem to fit. Eventually they get Jalen Ramsey back. So I think, and I love the fact that they went out and I know that the Chiefs, of course, the Chiefs are the Chiefs. They won the Super Bowl, but I mean, Getting Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle, like it's just almost yeah. when two is playing, it's almost impossible to defend that team. Like they played yeah. so fast last year. I couldn't believe how like having that combination of those two guys is just ridiculous. All right, that is Danny Kelly from The Ringer, the Ringer Fantasy Football Show, the Ringer NFL Draft Show, puts out the great Ringer NFL draft guide as well. Danny, thank you so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you.
Football season is about to kick off and FanDuel is giving you the chance to win all season long because right now when you bet on a Super Bowl winner, you can get bonus bets every time they win in the regular season. Just pick any team to win the Super Bowl and you'll get bonus bets after every victory. You can use your bonus bets on spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash bike and start earning bonus bets with America's number one sportsbook. That's FanDuel.com slash bike. Must be 21 plus and present in selected states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Max bonus $50 unless specified otherwise. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Danny Kelly as we get closer to the Patriots season. Man, I was really upset that Mike Isecki went down the other day. Hopefully he's ready to go from week one. I mean, it feels like from all the reporting, the Patriots are optimistic about that. But I really wanted to see Gusecki, an actual good tight end, playing alongside Hunter Henry rather than what you had the past couple of years with Jonu Smith. But I did want to get to this real quickly. So... I'm kind of getting worried about this Brady-Mahomes sort of narrative going forward. And the reason I say that is this. Mahomes said in Peter King's column, he was talking about getting Tom in terms of not anything like he was going after Tom. I, I phrased that wrong. But in terms of getting to seven Super Bowls, right? He said seven's a lot, but I'll strive to get as close as I can to win seven Super Bowls and be in 10 Super Bowls. It's crazy to even think about, even for me today. So there's nothing to this. Like, this is what Mahomes should say. He's currently the best quarterback in the NFL. He's the best football player on the planet. He should be saying this, that he wants to try to get to seven and match Brady, right? Like, that certainly is true. But today, like, I'm at the gym and first take is on, okay? And I see them debating, can Mahomes get to seven Super Bowls or not? Like, this is an innocent comment that Mahomes makes. And now we're on first take debating whether or not Mahomes can catch Brady. So first of all, my take on this real briefly is, Brady went into Mahomes' house after the 2018 season, beat him when Brady was in his 40s. He beat Pat Mahomes there, won that Super Bowl. Two years later, Brady beat Mahomes in the Super Bowl in his 40s, okay? So, like, when we talk about guys, like, passing certain guys, think about Michael Jordan back in the day. He beat Magic Johnson in the NBA Finals. He ended the bad boy Pistons, right? Like, all this stuff happened where Jordan beat those guys. Pat Mahomes lost to Brady twice in the playoffs, So he could easily, like Pat Mahomes could have four Super Bowls if he beat Brady twice, but Brady beat him. Okay, so I just don't see, even if Pat Mahomes gets to seven, how could you say that he's better than Brady if Brady, on paper, he beat him twice? Like these games actually happen. But anyway, I don't want to get super worked up about like debating this because now I'm feeding into the narrative thing. Like I'm doing it myself. But my whole thing about this is you look at it is I just feel like this is now going to become the new Jordan-LeBron debate, which I just got so sick and tired of. Like, it's just, it's so, like, that whole debate is just lazy, like, and people doing it all the time. I just, I can't do it anymore, right? I mean, so I just, I think about this Brady situation. I'm now cheering. Not, I like Mahomes. Like, I watched the Netflix series, and I liked Mahomes more than I did before the series. Like, so when I think about the Mahomes situation is... I just don't want this to continue to happen where it's not so much about like, can he actually catch Tom to me? It's more so about we're just going to get this every summer. We're going to get this every time we get close to the playoffs and Mahomes has the number one or the number two seed. What would this one mean compared to Brady? I just feel like this is going to take over. This is the new LeBron versus Michael Jordan situation, even though, by the way, Mahomes is still five behind Brady and still Brady beat him twice. But nonetheless, I don't want to get caught up in all this. I just hope that here's my hope. 
Joe Burrow becomes like a legitimate bona fide rival where Burrow wins the Super Bowl this year and he wins another one. And it's like, okay, Mahomes has three, Burrow has two. Who's better? Like, I hope we have that type of debate because in the moment we eventually had had these Tom Montana situations, but you had Tom versus Peyton, right? I, and obviously Tom goes down as the way better quarterback as Peyton Manning, but you get my point. I just want the rivalries to be the guys that are actually playing. I don't want us to have these conversations. I'm not going to have them. I already told you what I think. But nonetheless, I don't want to see this every offseason or every time we get close to the playoffs where we are debating Brady versus Mahomes. I, I just cannot put up with this whatsoever. I, I don't want to deal with it. I feel like we may have to deal with it. And it's unfortunate from my perspective that that is something we're going to have to deal with. Okay. I did want to get to another top five list. So, this is my top five favorite teams since 2000. Okay, now let me be abundantly clear about this. This is not the best teams. We did this back in the day. We did, not back in the day, it was less than a year ago, but we've done the best teams. This is my favorite teams to watch, okay, since the start of 2000. And I'm going to start number one. It may surprise a lot of people. That is the 2016 Patriots. Okay, the reason for this, remember, as I said, this is favorite teams, not best teams. There were other Patriots teams that were better than the 2016 team. No debating that whatsoever. But anyway, the 2016 Patriots, first of all, they were a wagon. They were an unbelievable team. But secondarily, they were pissed at the world. And as fans, I felt like we really rallied around this, right? So remember, this is when Brady served the four-game suspension for the joke that was Deflategate, right? (laughs) So the first four games, you don't have Tom Brady. And Jimmy G, we're going to find out if Jimmy G is actually good at football. So what happens? Cardinals, week one. A Cardinals team that, remember, they fell off that season, but the previous year they had won 13 games. So you play them in week one. Jimmy G looks good, 24 of 33, 264 and a touchdown. The Pats go in that game 10 for 16 on third down. You can do all the situational stuff that the Patriots have done through the years. You get the game-winning field goal from Guskowski. You win the game. And remember... That was the night game, the Sunday night football game. It was Jimmy G's debut. It was just an awesome way to start the season where I felt like, me personally, I thought the Patriots were going to lose that game based on what we saw from the Cardinals the previous season. Okay, then you have the Dolphins game that year where Jimmy G has the three touchdowns in the first half. And you're like, holy shit. He actually may be, Jimmy G may be really good. And then what happens? He goes down with an injury, a shoulder injury. So then you're thinking to yourself, oh, fuck. Now we're really screwed because now Jacoby Brissett has to play. And I actually alluded to this game earlier in our conversation with Danny Kelly. But Brissett comes in and he leads the Patriots to a touchdown drive against the Dolphins. You still win that game. LeGarrette Blunt has a tremendous game as well. 123 yards in that one and a touchdown. That was a big Martellus Bennett game. He went for 114 and a touchdown. And remember, Gronk was out the first two games of that season with a hammy injury, too. So you had Gronk dealing with an injury to begin the season. And of course, he would go down at the end of the season as well, needed the back surgery. But remember after that Dolphins game, we were all sort of concerned about, okay, now you're playing the Texans. It's on a short week, the game I was talking to Danny Kelly about. And Jacoby Brissett goes into Houston. Him and the Patriots, they shut them out 27 to nothing. Their first shutout since 2012. The Texans hadn't been shut out since 2000 or... 2003, rather, that was their first year or second year of existence, okay? Remember, the Texans, they were terrible in that game. They fumbled on special teams a couple of times, and Brissett ran the ball a ton in that game, including a 27-yard touchdown run. LeGarrette Blunt was awesome in that game, two touchdowns, including a 41-yard run. So you went 3-0 without Tom Brady, 
and you won one of those games with your third string quarterback, okay? So think about how impressive that was. So then, okay, yeah, you lose to the Bills, but then Brady comes back, and Brady goes scorched earth. First game back, Cleveland, 406 yards, three touchdowns. Gronk and Hogan, both over 100 yards. Martellus Bennett has three touchdowns in that game. And we're really starting to feel things, right? Because at that time, Gronk's still playing, and you had Martellus Bennett. It's like, oh, this guy's really good, too. Like, the Patriots are absolutely loaded. They were 3-1 and one without Tom. Now Tom comes back. He's incredible in that game. Next week is Brady's first home game of the season. He goes bonkers, 376 and three touchdowns. Gronk was outstanding, 162 and a touchdown. They crushed the Bengals 35 to 17. And by the way, our guy, James White, of course, friend of the pod, two touchdowns in that game. So, and the crowd was epic. I mean, everybody wanted to see Brady back because again, this, I come back to this point, we were rallying around Tom because we, everybody knew like the fan bases of other fan bases, I should say. They, like, thought the Patriots were actually cheating during the Flategate. Like, they actually thought this was a thing. And if you ever read the Wells report, it was a fucking joke. So we were all pissed about it. We all knew what a dumb punishment this was. And the only reason that they could actually do this is because of the language in the CBA where Roger Goodell had the power and Brady eventually just had to take the suspension. So we all knew that it was a trash suspension. We all knew it was a joke. But other fan bases, they wanted any little thing against the Patriots because of the whole Spygate situation. So we were all pissed off. Everybody else wanted to beat the Patriots. So we were all like fired up about this season. Like it was awesome to see when Brady came back. He just went nuts. The next week, the Pats beat the Steelers. Brady 19 of 26. They beat Buffalo after that. 315 and four touchdowns for Tom. So Brady's first four games, okay? First four games when he came back in 2016. 98 of 134. That is 73.1% people. 12 touchdowns, zero interceptions. Okay, this was Brady's best season. And I know in 2007, he set the record. This was Brady's best season. By the way, I had one loss that entire year. It was on Sunday Night Football to the Seahawks. That year, Brady finished the season 67.4% in terms of his completion percentage, 296.2 yards, a 112.2 passer rating, 28 touchdowns, two picks. 28 touchdowns and two picks for Brady that year. This was my favorite team. I mean, Brady was on another planet. He went crazy that season. He just went off. And even that season, I alluded to it with Gronk, there was some adversity there when Gronk goes down because it looked like when they had Gronk, when Brady come back, came back, nobody was beating the Patriots. And they didn't lose a game after Gronk went down either. The, Patri- the Patriots didn't lose without him. And then how can we forget the playoffs? Think about how fun the playoffs were that year, Okay. You, had the, you beat the Texans in the division around. That was kind of a slog of a game. But nonetheless, you win that game. But then remember the Steelers game? Antonio Brown, after the Steelers beat the Chiefs, he films the celebration in the locker room on Facebook Live. And he's filming Mike Tomlin live on Facebook. Tomlin says this, when you get to this point in the journey, not a lot needs to be said. Let's say very little moving forward. Let's start our preparation We spotted those assholes a day and a half talking about the Patriots. (laughs) They played yesterday. Our game got moved to tonight. We're going to touch down at four o'clock in the fucking morning. So be at it. We'll be ready on their ass. (laughs) Unreal. (laughs) Antonio Brown filmed this. Exactly what you don't want to give the Patriots, which is bulletin board material. Any sort of motivation, don't give it to the Patriots. They did. And what happens in the AFC championship game? The Patriots absolutely destroy the Steelers, as was predicted 
Brady, 384, three touchdowns, a 127.5 pass rating. But that Steelers team was so hyped, right? Because they had Big Ben, they had Le'Veon, they had Antonio Brown. And once again, the Patriots put them in their place. And for Dick LeBeau, who was one of the great defensive coordinators of his generation, I don't understand how that guy always showed Brady the same scheme. Like Brady admitted early in his career, he wasn't ready for it. Like the game that he got injured, that first AFC championship game for Tom, the true bloods that relieved him after he got injured, Brady admitted he wasn't ready for it, but he figured it out and he just diced it up the rest of his career. So I don't know why they continued to do that. And then how can we forget the Falcons Super Bowl, right? That happened in this season too. 28 to 3 comeback, so many big plays. Like this is this is why this is my favorite season. I mean, you had so much stuff. 28 to 12 in the fourth quarter. Dante Hightower, sack fumble on Matt Ryan. Huge play. Dante Hightower makes unbelievable plays in the playoffs, and in particular the Super Bowl. The Pats go down the field, Brady fa- finds Amendola, and then on the two-point conversion, remember they do the fake to Brady, like Brady, the ball's going over his head, direct snap to Amendola, and they get into the end zone, they make it 28 to 20, 447 left. We talked to James White about this, actually. Matt Ryan finds Julio Jones, one of the greatest catches I've ever seen. That's down to the Patriots' 22-yard line. The game should be over. 4.47 left, and they are up 28-20, to 20, the Falcons. But what happens? On 2nd and 11, Matt Ryan takes a sack from Trey Flowers, who, by the way, is back with the Patriots. But then, okay, just run the clock out. 3rd and 23, Jake Matthews, a hold on Chris Long. That pushes it back to 3rd and 33 from the 45. So they went from the Patriots' 22 all the way back to the 45, and they had to punt. And we know the rest, Edelman, the crazy catch. They reviewed it. Edelman made the catch. We've all seen it. And then after that, Brady finds James White for the touchdown. James White with the conversion. They tie it up. And then, of course, we all know what happens. Once you get into overtime, the Patriots are going to win that game. They go right down the field. Brady passed Montana for the most Super Bowls or Super Bowl MVPs and Super Bowls because that was his fifth. James White set the record for points. And eventually, Jalen Hurts tied it this year, but 20 points. Brady set the record for passing attempts. He threw the ball 62 times. So what I love about that team and what I love about this season, it had everything. The beginning of that season, it wasn't just the team, but as a fan base, we had this us versus the world mentality. We all felt, and rightfully so, that the league fucked the Patriots. So we were all pissed. And then when Brady came back, we had Brady's best season. That was the best season he ever played And you had adversity that you had to overcome with the Gronk situation, the Pats rally there. And then in the postseason, you had the Steelers situation. You put them back in their place where the Steelers just continue to beat them down. They were not a rival to you whatsoever like the Ravens were. The Steelers were never a rival to you. And then you start to think about the fact you have the epic comeback. The season had everything. But the number one thing that you had was a pissed off Brady. That was the best part about that season. So sure, we've had better teams here locally, but I've never enjoyed a season more than that one. It was just so fun. The Patriots were already villains, but this was villains to the next level because everybody thought they cheated and Brady just destroyed everybody that season. Okay, so that's my number one. The 2016 Patriots are my favorite team since 2000, okay? And the reason I don't go back to the 1980s, like the 86 Celtics, I'm sure they would be my favorite team. I wasn't alive. I can't do the 1986 Celtics. Believe me, I wish I could. Okay, so that brings me to my number two team in terms of my favorite teams since 2000. That's the idiots, the 2004 Red Sox. I went back and forth a little bit with them in the 2016 Patriots, but when I was looking up all this stuff and I was writing all this stuff, I'm like, no, I got to go with the 2016 Patriots. Just in the moment, I remember liking that team more. Okay, but... 
I feel like most people will have the 2004 Red Sox over the 2016 Patriots. And I think a lot of you would have put the 2004 Red Sox first on your list. I'm going 2016 Patriots, but I'm certainly not going to hate you if you want to put the 2004 Red Sox on there. Certainly understand why you would. Okay. So remember, you have to preface this by saying it happens after a gut-wrenching loss in Game 7 the previous season in 03. Aaron fucking Boone, the home run off Wakefield, okay? And thinking back, and remember, it was just a really weird situation with the Pedro situation, leaving him in too long. But nonetheless, you had one of the most bizarre off seasons, right? Because think about this, and they made a documentary for it at ESPN. A-Rod that offseason, he was going to be traded to the Red Sox for Manny and a guy by the name of John Lester, who at the time was a prospect in the Red Sox organization. But the Players Association said, no, no, no. A-Rod is the highest paid player in the league. He cannot take a pay cut. So the Players Association says A-Rod can't go there. So A-Rod doesn't come to the Red Sox. And then he goes to the Yankees, which really fueled the rivalry. The rivalry was already getting really good because these were two powerhouses that were going back and forth, signing big-name players, trading for big-name players. They just played an epic seven-game series. And then they get A-Rod, the guy that the Red Sox wanted. Okay, two huge moments with A-Rod from one was in the regular season, one was in the postseason. In the regular season, remember, Brunson Arroyo plunks A-Rod, and you get the bench-clearing brawl, which also <laughs> had Pedro throwing down the late Don Zimmer, who at the time was 73. Remember, he ran after Pedro. Pedro tossed him to the ground. You had that. The Red Sox, as a team, have said that was a turning point to the season. And then remember the ALCS. The fucking garbage when A-Rod slapped Brunson Arroyo's glove, slapped it out of his glove. Just a loser move, defined everything we knew about A-Rod. And what happens? They go back and they say, yeah, yeah, you can't do that, A-Rod. So it gets taken back. But that was just so A-Rod in that moment. It just made us hate A-Rod even more. So the whole A-Rod thing made it all that more dramatic for the 2004 Red Sox. But the other two pieces, of course, Grady Little had to go. So you bring in Tito, who was the perfect manager, just an absolute steal. Schilling, I, I should say the Schilling trade was an absolute steal. It was great to get Tito in here, who, of course, managed Schilling when they were in Philly together. But Casey Fossum, Mike Goss, Brandon Lyon, and Jorge De La Rosa for Kurt Schilling. <laughs> Think about that. Schilling won 21 games, 21-6, and six, 226 and two-thirds, a 106 whip, made... 32 starts, and we all know what happened in game six. Schilling gets operated on. He goes out there. He said he wanted to shut up 55,000 New Yorkers, and he did. Surgery on the training table. That gets you to the game seven. And in that game six, by the way, he goes seven innings, giving up just one earned run, and that's how they force the game seven. Just epic, epic stuff from Schilling in that game. Now, you also had moments in that series. Remember, the steal, Dave Roberts game four. After Millar walks, Roberts runs for him with Rivera on the mound. He steals second. And then Bill Miller singles to tie things up at four. People actually forget, I think, that Bill Miller actually had that hit. Like, everybody talks about the steal. Nobody talks about, hey, Bill Miller, that was a pretty big hit to tie the game up, right? But anyway, and then the legend of Ortiz is born in 2004. He had a great season, but the legend was born. Remember, he hits the bomb in the 12th off Paul uh, Quantrell to win that game, the game that Dave Roberts has the steal. Ortiz in game five, you had walks from Damon and Manny, two outs, Ortiz a 10-pitch at bat against Esteban Loaiza, singles, back-to-back games of the walk-off. Just unreal, back-to-back games of the walk-off, David Ortiz. And then after that 04 season was really, that was when, or I should say 04 playoffs, that's when we were introduced 
to David Ortiz, who would then become the best clutch hitter of his generation. That's where it all started, right? And then you had the Nomar trade that season. Like, this season is crazy. The 2004 Red Sox, it's just unreal. Remember, he was all upset about the A-Rod flirtation. His agent called it a slap in the face. And then remember, they were going to send after the hypothetical or the deal that was basically done was agreed to, except the Players Association decided, no, he's not going there. They were going to trade Nomar after that to the White Sox for Maglio Ordonez. Remember, they were going to trade him because they didn't need a shortstop anymore. So... Millar, by the way, when this is all going on, Millar was on ESPN and he publicly said, we're talking about a guy who's going to be the leader and be the face of the organization. That's Alex Rodriguez. That's what he said on TV. Kevin Millar did. And remember, Nomar was all mad about this. He was mad about his contract. And then he told the team he's going to miss time in August and September to deal with his injury. Remember, he had this like Achilles situation. He had a bunch of stuff going on. Basically, he's whining. He didn't have his contract. He was becoming a real problem. You needed to move on. But trading Nomar, this is a bold move by Theo Epstein, even though he had become an issue in the clubhouse. He wasn't fitting in with the team anymore. But that's a bold move to trade Nomar Garcia Parra. And you trade him for a defensive specialist, basically, in Orlando Cabrera and Doug Mankiewicz, who's basically a defensive replacement, right? That That's the trade. And it worked. I mean, Nomar, the bad energy you had to move on from, he was gone. And he was not going to get a contract with the Red Sox. In that year, you got a real upgrade defensively. Orlando Cabrera, seven defensive runs saved at short that season. Fifth most in baseball. Nomar was at minus 12. And I get it. He was dealing with an injury and he was unmotivated. But that was sort of one of the deals that defined Theo. This whole whiz kid thing. He had to pay off on it, right? He got shilling prior to the season. And then this is the big one where it's like, oh, Wait, Orlando Cabrera and Doug Mankiewicz for Nomar? Even though we know there's issues here. I mean, it was just an unbelievable trade that worked out for the organization. And that team, they still had Manny. Remember, Manny that year had 43 bombs, the fifth most in Major League Baseball, first in the American League. He had 130 RBIs fourth. Ortiz was second at 139. And Ortiz, by the way, one bomb less than Manny that season. Or I should say, he, yeah, one bomb less. You had two guys with 40 home runs. Unreal. Manny slugged 6-13, the best in the American League. A 10.09 OPS, seventh in all of baseball, best in the American League. And Pedro, he wasn't peak Pedro in 04, but he was still Pedro. I mean, he was pretty good. And then Keith Folk came over, great closer for you. His whip was six among relievers. So you had the crazy preseason stuff with A-Rod. You got chilling. You had the A-Rod stuff, the A-Rod brawl. You had the comeback, of course. You had the Nomar drama. And remember, just the characters on that team. You had Pedro. You had Manny. You had Damon. And even, remember Millar. When the Red Sox were down 0-3, he's talking to Dan Shaughnessy, and he says, and actually it's in the documentary that builded the 30 for 30 documentary where he's talking to Shaughnessy. He says, let me tell you, don't let us win today. We got PD tomorrow, Shill game six, game seven, anything can happen. And he's talking to Shaughnessy. He says, we can have you out there. Anything could happen. <laughs> and you can take that, that fraud comment back because Shaughnessy had called the Red Sox frauds. So they end this 86-year curse. It was just an awesome team. It was an awesome moment. And... Finally, that curse was lifted. Now, it wasn't as painful for me because I didn't grow up with all these losses that the Red Sox had. Like, since I've been watching the Red Sox, they win World Series. They've won four. So I didn't have the pain that some of the older Red Sox fans had. But that season was just magical. I absolutely loved that team. I had so much fun watching that team. Okay, that brings us to number three, my favorite team since 2000, 2008 Celtics. Now, We've talked a lot about the Celtics with our lists. I had KG as one of my most entertaining players. 
I also had him as my best Celtics big since 2000. I had Pierce as my number one Celtics wing since 2000. Ray was on my list as best Celtics guards. He was number two behind Rajon Rondo. They made the postseason more interesting than it needed to be. I think we can all acknowledge that. Like, there's no reason they needed to go seven with Atlanta. Even if, and I know they had LeBron, but that gave you a heart attack against Cleveland going seven games. You did have the epic back and forth between LeBron and Pierce, which was fun to watch, but you were kind of nervous, right? Like, oh my God, they won 66 games and they may lose in the first round. Wait, they may lose in the second round. Like both those series were just like completely stressful from a fan's perspective, right? But then you start to think about the fact I mentioned they beat the Lakers in the finals, which is awesome, right? Like you renew that rivalry, which hadn't been a rivalry in some time. And that season, I mentioned the 66 games, the most since that all-time great 86 team won 67. The 84 championship team won 62. The 81 team won 62. So 66 games, that's a lot. So the team was just on an absolute mission, right? And it was just so unique because I can't really remember a time that we've seen this before in the NBA where it's like, okay, we talk about big threes, but that heat group, Wade had already won a championship, Durant to the Warriors, all those other guys had won titles. I guess basically the only comp would be the 76ers when in 83, they brought in Moses Malone to go with Dr. J to get Dr. J's first NBA championship. But rarely do we see this where these groups getting together immediately win a title. The Celtics were able to do it, right? Because all these guys knew how hard it was and had these struggles, which kind of made that group, Ray, Paul, and Garnett sort of bond. KG didn't have the help in Minnesota. Ray in Milwaukee, now he did get fucked by the league against Philadelphia because they wanted Allen Iverson in the NBA Finals, right? But they weren't going to beat the Lakers that year anyway. And then in Seattle, he had won 31 games the year prior. And remember, the Celtics had won 24 games the year prior. So these guys were all over the individual stuff. They were done with that. It was about winning a championship. And it worked from the beginning because of Garnett. Because everybody fed off Garnett and the defensive identity that Garnett put on that team. But as Celtics fans, growing up, the team was irrelevant in the 90s. We lived through the Patino stuff. And then we watched Chauncey Billups win a championship in 04. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, yeah, the Celtics drafted that guy and traded him in his rookie season. But then you don't get the number one or the number two pick after the tanking year that we mentioned with the Celtics were one of the worst teams in the NBA. And you're thinking, what do they do now? They're not going to get Durant. They're not going to get Greg Oden. Obviously, it worked out that they didn't get Oden. But nonetheless, you're like, well, what's going to happen with this organization? Are they just going to be irrelevant? Like, And it's going to keep going in this direction? Because they hadn't been one of the premier teams in the league for so long and they figured it out part of because Kevin McHale was running the Timberwolves. Certainly that works out. And all these guys were similar ages. But for me, I had never known a real contender in the NBA growing up. I wasn't alive, as I mentioned, for those Larry Bird teams. So I was just watching this team and how dominant they were. It was just different for us, right? It was we actually had an expectation like we already had these expectations with the Patriots after they won the first one. We had these expectations with the Red Sox, even though they hadn't won. I guess by that time in 08, they had won two World Series. But you get my point. Is like As a basketball fan, it was awesome to watch the Celtics again. We didn't have that for so long as Celtics fans, and you finally got that back with that 2008 team. And we went through the playoffs, but the trio, it was awesome. And man, Pierce was unbelievable in that playoff run. So that was number three for me. Watching the 2008 Celtics, the timing couldn't have been better because... You went from being scarred by the lottery balls to the situation where you have Kevin Garnett 
and you get to watch Kevin Garnett. It was just awesome. The 2008 Celtics were great because he didn't have a really great Celtics team for so long. All right, number four. So this is where things sort of get a little, little difficult for me. Top three, those top three teams were easy for me. But, and unequivocally my top three. But then it gets a little dicey here in terms of where you're going. So I will admit that it was tougher for me to pick four and five than one, two, and three. And I know you can argue with my order. I know a lot of you are not going to like my 2006, uh, 2016 Patriots pick. But the point being is those were easy for me. But after that, I had to really think about this. So four to me, and I think part of this is, this is when I became the most obsessed with baseball. Well, actually, that's probably not true because I'm pretty obsessed with baseball right now too. But anyway, 2018 Red Sox. I'm putting them fourth on my list because this was an unreal team. This was an absolute wagon. The Sox were so close in 16 and 17. Not that they were close to winning those series against the Astros in 17. Sale was terrible in that series, but they just needed some additions. There was a ton of talent with this team because remember at that time, the Red Sox had an outstanding farm system and they were all coming up, right? You had Mookie up. You had Benintendi up. Rafi was up. So you had all these guys that were going to be outstanding players. It was just a matter, could you cash in with the rest of the roster? So the first thing you had to do, John Farrell had to go. We all know that he won a World Series in 2013. Don't get me started on Farrell. He's one of the worst tacticians in the sport, in the history. Of the, he's terrible, okay? But nonetheless, you bring in Alex Cora, friend of the pod, of course. He was the hottest name out there. A lot of teams wanted him. You bring him in, slam dunk higher. Then remember what else you did. You went out and you got J.D. Martinez and you held out. Scott Boris wanted more money. He kept saying he was going to get more money, didn't have the suitors that he thought he was going to get. You land J.D. Martinez, the best slugger in the market after in 2017. You didn't have David Ortiz. You didn't have a middle of a lineup guy. You get J.D. J.D. hits 43 home runs, the second most in baseball. He drove in 130 home runs, the most in baseball by seven. He hit 330, second to only Mookie Betts. So he was the perfect guy to replace David Ortiz, okay? And then, think about some of these other guys. Kimbrell was electric out of the pen, 42 saves that season. He had his hiccups in the postseason. But when he came out of the pen during the regular season, man, it was special. He had that whole weird thing with his arm. Like, it was just hilarious seeing Kimbrell come out there. And I, I, hilarious is the wrong word, but just looking at that motion, it's hilarious. But when you saw it, you're like, the game's over. You knew it now. During the postseason, different situation. But during the regular season, when you saw Kimbrell come into the game, you knew it was over. Chris Sale that season was unbelievable. And I know he's injured in the postseason. He was not a huge contributor. I understand the strikeout of Machado, but he wasn't a consistent contributor in the postseason because he was dealing with injuries. During the regular season, led Major League Baseball in strikeout rate and whip. He was incredible, okay? And then you had the MVP, Mookie Betts, okay? Led baseball in war, 10.5 wins above replacement, one run better than Mike Trout. Think about how good you have to be to be one run better than Mike Trout. And Mookie played in fewer games than Trout. 346 average was first, 18 defensive runs saved. He was so good in the outfield. I was third among outfielders that season. I still get upset talking about Mookie, who's going to be back at Fenway in a couple of weeks here. But he was so entertaining. He was so electric. And I've mentioned this before on the pod, but that 13-pitch grand slam off of J.A. Happ was just incredible. And then the team set the franchise record, of course, with 108 wins. This is where I come back to the wagon thing. Like, they were so dominant. Like, the Red Sox were must-see TV that season. They beat the Yankees, they beat the Astros, and they beat the Dodgers. And they only lost three total games, one to each of them. It was a dominant run. That playoff run, it was remarkable, right? You had cool moments that postseason. Aaron Judge playing New York, New York. He goes by the Red Sox clubhouse, and then the Sox beat them 16-1 to in Game 3. 
And Alex Cora says, we scored 16 runs at Yankee Stadium. Suck on that at the parade like they referenced it. So obviously that was a rallying call for the Red Sox. The judge did that. And remember, David Price, who everybody was fed up with Price. The teams that Price had played on, they were 0-10 until his Game 5 start. They start him on short rest in Houston because Sale couldn't make the start. He outpitches Verlander. Six innings, nine strikeouts, three hits, no earned runs. And I thought this was genius to start him on short rest in Houston because it's like, okay, it'd be worse for him at Fenway. It would be worse for him going in front of the home crowd and getting beat up. There's no pressure on him. Like, nobody expects him to win in Houston in the clincher. Like, nobody expected that to happen. So I feel like the pressure was sort of let off him. And then he was great the rest of the postseason. He was really good in that Dodgers series. So that was a huge moment. And remember, you had a young Rafi in that game who had a bomb off Verlander into the Crawford boxes there in Houston. And prior to that one, so that was the big home run. JD had a home run in that game too. But in that game, in the game prior, remember Kimbrell was losing it on the mound. It's 8-6. Bases loaded. Alex Bregman, who that year he was their most dangerous hitter. Bregman hits a line drive into left field. Benintendi comes in. He makes the unbelievable catch, the walk-off catch. And if he doesn't catch that, he dove, it goes past, and the base is probably clear. The Red Sox lose that game. So an outstanding catch in that series from Benintendi. And then, of course, Jackie Bradley Jr. is the ALCS MVP. He had like an uh, unreal series. He had three hits, but they were all impactful. Game four hits the go-ahead home run off Josh James in the sixth to give the Sox a 6-5 lead. They win 8-6. Game two, he doubled to make it 5-4. And then in game three, at the grand slam off uh, uh, Roberto Osuna, their closer there to make it 8-2. So he had massive hits. And then the Dodgers series, Steve Pierce, who they traded for, he was incredible. Three home runs. Game four hit the solo home run off Canley Jansen in the eighth, who, of course, is now on the Red Sox. And then in the ninth, a base-clearing double to put the Sox up 8-4. Game five, the clincher, he had a two-run homer off Kershaw, and then another one in the eighth off Pedro Baez to make it 5-1. So that great deal at the deadline along with Nate Evaldi, who remember he pitched in that marathon game, but the team had everything. That team was so fun. Best lineup in baseball, rock-solid bullpen, the best DH in J.D. Martinez, and the MVP. Incredible outfield, too. They were fifth as a team in defensive run save. They were great defensively that season. So yeah, we've had more dramatic teams and events, but this was one of the most dominant teams we've seen in recent Boston history because from start to finish, they were just incredible. They just need a, they needed a couple of tweaks. J.D. Martinez, Alex Cora, like they just needed a couple of things and they completely took off and having Mookie back in the leadoff spot every day rather than in 2017 where Farrell was messing around putting him at cleanup, it was just the perfect fit for the Red Sox and that was an unreal team. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. 
When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Okay, my fifth team, my favorite team since 2000, 2014 Patriots. And look, there are certainly other directions you can go here. But man, the 2014 was so the 2014 team was so good. You bring in Revis, the ultimate hired gun. We talked about him when he went into the Hall of Fame. But you loved having him because he was the best defensive player for the Jets for so long. So just from sort of a rewarding standpoint as a Patriots fan, where you hate the Jets, even though the Jets have been a dumpster fire. I know they have Aaron Rodgers now, of course, but Belichick hates the Jets. So we sort of hate the Jets. And the fact that you got the best Jet in recent history to come to your team, it was just awesome, right? Because the Patriots, they had lost to Lieb to the Broncos. And that's, of course, when Peyton Manning is with the Broncos. So you think, oh, man, what are they going to do? And they were able to get Revis, and he fit in perfectly with his team. And remember, it took Gronk a while to get going that season because he was coming back from the torn ACL and the MCL. He didn't really look like himself early in the season. But then in that Cincinnati game, he goes for 100 yards and a touchdown. And going back to what I said earlier, like the 2016 Patriots, they're my favorite team. The 2014 Patriots, even though they were, what, 12-4, and they were better than the Patriots team that went 14 and two and won the Super Bowl that year. Like this team was better on paper than that Patriots team. But I just enjoyed the 2016 Patriots so much for the reasons I outlined earlier. But he had that crazy game, did Gronk against the Bears, three touchdowns, a buck 40. He had 12 touchdowns on the season. That was tied for the most among tight ends. He led all tight ends in yards. It was vintage Gronk. And remember, that was the season where he had the. <laughs> Sergio Brown, he had to throw him out of the club. Remember that in the game against Indy? But then you had some crazy postseason moments too. In the first game against the Ravens, remember, the Patriots, this is the one team, and I kind of alluded to this with the Steelers. Like, I, I you always got worried about the Steelers, about, about the Ravens, rather, not the Steelers. And in that game against the Ravens, the Patriots fell by down by two touchdowns twice. They were down 28 to 21 in the third quarter, and you have the crazy pass from Edelman to Amendola. And then the Ravens take a lead to make it 31 to 28. I still remember like going back to that Edelman making that throw. It's like Josh McDaniels, unbelievable, right? But then the Ravens take the lead 31 to 28. Brady goes down the field. He finds Brandon LaFell. He sets the record with his 46th uh, postseason touchdown. And you're like, okay, here we go. The Patriots are actually going to win this game. Jerron Harmon with the pick. But it was epic. I mean, that was an awesome game. And remember the whole controversy with the ineligible versus the eligible guys, the Patriots had sort of pulled a fast one over on the Ravens, which was legal, where Shane Vereen was declaring himself ineligible, but the Ravens were covering him because it wasn't something the teams ordinarily did. The Patriots actually stole this from Alabama, was doing it during the season. John Harbaugh was all pissed off. He actually got flagged for it, and Brady comes out after the game, and he says, maybe you should study the rule book, and then that got banned after the season, like that you could do that, but it was awesome in the moment. And then you hammer the Colts. LeGarrette Blunt runs for a buck 48 and three touchdowns in that game. And then you have the stupid deflate gate controversy after the 45 to 7 win, where it didn't matter. You could have played with beach balls and the Patriots would have beat the Colts. The Colts couldn't stop the run. So, and remember, leading up to the Super Bowl, like we didn't think it was going to be a story. Remember, Brady was like joking about it. And then you have the epic Bill Belichick presser when he's asked about it. He says, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert of footballs or football measurements. I'm just telling you what I know. 
I would not say I'm the Mona Lisa Vito of the football world as she was in the car expertise area, referencing my cousin Vinny. So <laughs> leave it to Belichick to have a press conference like that. It was epic. Like you're getting ready for the Super Bowl and Bill's referencing my cousin Vinny in his press conference. And then you had the epic Super Bowl, right? The Legion of Boom, who had just beat Peyton Manning, it, they're about to become one of the all-time great defenses. If you can take down Manning and Brady and back-to-back Super Bowls, think about that from their perspective, and it kind of broke the team after that. But anyway, remember, right before the half, they have K.J. Wright singled up on Gronk. And Brady sees it. He's like, wait, is this is this really going on? And Gronk goes deep. Brady finds him for a touchdown. You tie the game up at four, or you take the lead 14-7. to seven, But then Seattle, they go down the field. Remember that Chris Matthews guy who would never be heard of again as big a big catch? They make it 14 to 14. And then at the in the second half, Brady's picked off by Bobby Wagner. And the Seahawks score in that Baldwin touchdown. And Sherman is taunting Revis, remember? Because Baldwin beat Revis for the touchdown. He's holding up the 2-4 to the camera. And you're getting pissed off as a Patriot fan because you're like, he's mocking Revis and you could easily lose this game. But then Brady goes off. 68-yard drive ends with an Amendola touchdown. Two big completions to Edelman on that drive. One of them, Edelman was concussed. Remember that? He was hit by Cam Chancellor, basically concussed. He comes back. He continues to play. But then you go down the field and a couple of completions to Shane Vereen. Then Brady finds Edelman. The Patriots take the 28-24 to lead. You think, okay, you're going to win the Super Bowl. Game's over. And then the curse play where it's the same stadium that you had the David's eye re-catch. It's in Arizona, in Glendale, and you're thinking, no, this is going to happen again. Curse has this unbelievable catch. And then Hightower, like I said earlier, Hightower underrated play. Hightower makes the tackle on Marshawn Lynch on, what, the first down play, so Lynch doesn't get into the end zone there. Huge play by Hightower. And then, of course, you have the idiot play call, Malcolm Butler with the interception, and the rest is history. I mean, just a boneheaded decision by Pete Carroll in that Coaching staff, unreal play by Malcolm Butler, but it was unreal. And that was 10 years, right? You're thinking, is Brady going to get, like, Duncan had the the title later on in his career. Is Brady going to get that title? Is Brady going to get it 10 years later? He finally gets that title. And of course, he went on to win two more with the Patriots and one with the Bucks, of course, after that. But that was sort of, he got the Montana ring. He got the fourth ring. And that season had it all. Gronk back and Gronk being one of the most dominant forces in NFL history, you had the hired gun in Revis, the drama with Deflategate leading up to the Super Bowl, the epic comeback against the Seahawks, the unbelievable game against the Ravens. So the Patriots, they get the credit for after that, remember, being the smarter team. Because how hyped up was the Butler play? Like, we saw it on the Do Your Job documentary. But that team was a ton of fun. Okay, so that's my top five. Honorable mentions, you could have picked any of the Patriots teams, right? I wouldn't do 07. The reason I eliminated 07, because it was so painful how it ended. You're about to be the team that was the best in NFL history, and then you lose to the Giants, 17-14. to 14. I just can't put them in there because they broke your heart, right? Like, yeah, it was a ton of fun to watch Brady throw those touchdowns to Randy Moss, and they both broke the record, but you lost at the end. So, yeah, as fun as it was, I mean, the movie had a shitty ending. So how could I put that in my top five teams, right? 01, 03, 04 Patriots, you could take any of those. If I was going to take one of those over 16 or 14, I would probably take 04 because... That year, now Rodney was on 03 and 04. Rodney's my favorite Patriot, non-Brady division. So Edelman's up there too, but those two guys. But nonetheless, my point being is you had Dylan there too, where Dylan was third in rushing yards that season. You're bringing Corey Dylan. That team was dominant. Remember, 
The 0-1 team, of course, they had the epic Rams Super Bowl, the tuck rule game, the emergence of Tom. Like That certainly is one that you could consider as well. The 0-4 team, though, they destroyed Peyton and the Rams. Or I should say the 0-1 team. Peyton, they destroyed the Rams. I mean, 0-4, you destroyed the Eagles in the Super Bowl. Remember the whole controversy with Donovan McNabb? 0-3 was an unbelievable team as well. I just love 16 because of Tom having his best season. I loved 14 because of what it meant getting back there for Brady and what we're witnessing with Gronk, like in the whole controversy with the flake. I, I love those two seasons. 07, the Red Sox were a wagon. Beckett was great, but I never, they never connected to me personally, like the old four team. Like they were incredible. They had that epic win over, they were down three, one to Cleveland, but they never registered to me like the old four team did or the 18 team did. 13 was awesome. It just, it took forever for me to believe in that team. Even like when they got into the ALCS against the Tigers, I thought they were going to go down 2-0. Ortiz hits that unbelievable home run. That team, like, think about that team. Like, did anybody think that was a World Series team? So, yes, it turned out to be incredibly fun to watch, but I prefer the 18 team. That was awesome. I mean, Ortiz is great in that run. And then Bruins-wise, obviously 2011. Like, Tim Thomas just went nuts. Krejci, who, Krejci had 23 points, led the team that year. He, of course, just retired him and Bergeron. End of an era there. But that was awesome. I mean, Tim Thomas broke the record for save percentage. He won the Vesna that year. He had shutouts in Game 7 against Tampa and Game 7 against Vancouver. He set the record for the most saves in the postseason with 798, most saves in the Stanley Cup with 238. That was just an awesome team. I mean, the 2011 Bruins, they definitely deserve consideration here, and I'm sure a lot of you would have that team in this group, but my list is probably different than most people. All right, we bring in now our producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, okay, so I give my list, my top five teams. This is my decision. This is top five. This is not best, okay? So it's not like a debate, but what would you change? What would your list look like? I think two things, Brian. Firstly, we're similar age, so in a lot of ways, mine mirrors this. And for instance, the 14 team was incredibly important to me. Like you said, that 10-year gap was excruciating but and it was so satisfying having it all work out but i really think you got to have the 01 patriots team in there the legend is born i feel like it's such a legendary season everything came together Back would you have them one i think you kind of have to i think i always think of like oh wow. four red sox oh one patriots it's like they're together these supreme underdogs and I just feel like you hear about it, like from your older relatives and everyone. It's just, it's just been around my life, my entire life. And I don't know, I feel like it's almost fun to think about more than a lot of these teams. Yeah. And all one, all one was so dramatic too, because not just the fact that, okay, the Mo Lewis hit on Drew Bledsoe, Brady comes in, it becomes his job. You have questions leading up to Bledsoe coming back. Hey, is Drew going to get the job back? And Belichick decides, no, I'm going with Brady. And then again, this whole situation presents itself again prior to the Super Bowl. Because Brady, and I I briefly alluded to this, but Brady has the injury in the Steelers game. In comes Bledsoe. He wins that game. Bledsoe thinks he's going to start in the Super Bowl. We talked to Bledsoe about this on the pod a couple of months back. So after that, you're in a situation with Bledsoe where they're before the game or the week of the game leading up to it. Bill goes in and tells, calls them both up to his room and tells Drew that Tom's starting and the rest is history. And even in that game, remember John Madden, when the Patriots get the ball back and it's a tie game at the end of the fourth quarter, John Madden says you should play for overtime. Belichick says, no, 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 we're going for it. And Brady goes down the field, sets up the field goal for Adam Vinatieri and the Patriots win that game. So yeah, 0-1 was awesome. It just... 
from my perspective, the 01 team, and look, I, I made the cutoff of the best team since 2000. I was so young then. I know. Like the, I know. the 2016 team, like I can remember like totally. every detail from that season. You know what I mean? For so sure, I'm sure like sure. anybody over the age of, let's say, 45, yeah. it's going to be the 01 Patriots and it's going to be the 04 Red Sox. I'm just at a different generation. And the, 06, the 16 thing is more about Brady to me than anything else. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's one of the best quarterback seasons we've ever seen. He didn't win the MVP. Matt Ryan ended up winning the MVP. But that's one of the best quarterback seasons. That's Tom's best season. And it was after everything that happened with the Deflategate situation. No, that was, Jamie. He was better than he was in 07. 07, he had 15 touchdowns. 2016, Brady, that was like laser-focused, pissed yeah. off at the world. Nobody could stop him that year. Even the, Leg- even the Legion of Boom in 14 couldn't oh, stop cool. him either. Like, the 14 season was awesome, too. I love yeah. that season. 18, not so much. I didn't even consider 18. Like, the 18 Patriots, man. I still can't believe they won it. They were like 11 and 5. The best thing is that they beat Mahomes, right? Like they beat Mahomes and the Chiefs. But that nobody thought they were in the Super Bowl that year. Even after they beat the Chargers, Brady's doing the interview, I believe it was with, yeah, it was with CBS because it was against the Chargers with Tracy Wolfson. He says, everybody thinks we suck. No, I, I hear you. I, I didn't. That team was super frustrating, though. I will say, like you said, that AFC Championship game in Arrowhead was one of the best games I've seen in my life. So they get they, yeah. the redeeming quality there. We had that on our bracket. Remember when we did the bracket? The best was, I think it was like the 04 Red Sox won that bracket. It was the it was the bracket about like the best games, the best right. mo- Boston sports moments. Right, right, right. Uh, no one's going to like this pick, and I'll probably be thrown out for saying it. But uh, from my point of view, regular season, I thought last year's Bruins team was some of the most fun I've ever had watching hockey. Yeah. Now, obviously, it ended terribly, but game to game, they were just extraordinary. You know what I mean? Yeah, they became, you're right, they became appointment TV during the regular season, which you don't ordinarily say that about the Bruins during the regular season, Mm -hmm. right? It's all about, with that organization, it's all about, hey, are you going to get the second cup with the Bergeron, Krejci Corps? Of course, they didn't get the second cup with the Bergeron, Krejci Corps, but they did become appointment television. It's just, it ended so abruptly, man. (laughs) And blowing the 3-1 lead, like, it just, it ended so poorly for that team. And look, end of an era, Bergeron gone. Krejci gone. Obviously, Char has been gone for a couple of years now, but end of an era for the Bruins, man. I shouldn't have brought it up. I know. Now I'm pissed off after I just named my favorite teams of all time. You have to ruin the moment. We are. Oh, the, by the way, Brian, I mean, how lucky are we that we get to make this list? And it's like a tough list to figure out. Like, ah, I'm not sure. Maybe that championship. That championship was OK, but I like this championship better. Like. It's fantastic. Well, imagine if our guy JJ had to do that in New York right now. What would he have? Like a couple of Yankees, <laughs> right? Yankees, the Yankees, yeah. Oh yeah, nine Yankees, oh one Yankees. He'd have a couple and the two Giants, Giants ones though. Yeah. yeah, two Giants teams, but that's it. I know. Jets. I Jets haven't won anything. I mean, the Mets made it to the World Series in what two thousand, but they haven't won anything, and that's a dumpster fire of an organization right now. So yeah, we've been blessed. Certainly. I mean, not. what would the the Phillies the Philly guys would have a couple if they did it? I mean, they'd have the two. They, they'd have Eagles. the team, the Eagles, that won the Super Bowl in 17. Last year's Eagles team was a wagon, so I guess they'd have them. I guess they'd probably have, like, the 0-1 Sixers that made it to the NBA Finals but lost. But They had that they Ryan have a lot Howard, of cha- Utley. Oh, yeah, the Phillies team. The Phillies team that won. Yep, that's a good yeah. one. The Phillies team that won. And that was that was before they got – that was, yeah, with Cole Hamels. That was before – they had an unreal team the following season, but they didn't win it. They lost to the they Giants. they lost the Yankees, right? They lost the Yankees – they lost the Giants one year too, I think. Didn't they have like in the before the World Series? They that year they had like Roy Halladay, they had Cliff right. Lee. Like that team was loaded. Jimmy Rollins, you mentioned Chase Utley. Yeah, they had some good teams too. But yeah, we got all these championships. 
Like, we don't even mention the Celtics team that made it to the finals two years ago. Well, as Brady says, my favorite championship, the next one. What's the next yeah. one, Brian? Yeah, is that what Max saying? <laughs> you never know. They're looking fast out there. All right, Jamie. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We will see about the Patriots playing it on Saturday night. All right, Jamie. So let's get to some emails here. That email address is offthepike at gmail.com. Who do we got? Um, okay, Brian. This is from Andrew. Andrew writes, I'm optimistic about the Celtics for the 2023 season and think they can go deep into the playoffs. But my question for you is, if things turn sour next season, what is the most likely way you see the Celtics underachieve and don't meet expectations? For example, Porzingis doesn't work out. Missoula doesn't improve as a coach, etc. I would say the most likely to that would be Missoula. Mm. Now, I don't think that's going to be the case because they bring in two assistants that can certainly help them in Charles Lee. And, of course, in Sam I Am, Sam Cassell is back. But that would be the most likely. I think Porzingis is going to fit in fine. Like, it's not as if the Celtics traded for him without Porzingis wanting to come here. Porzingis, he couldn't have signed with the Celtics as a free agent. The only reason he opted into his contract is so that he could come to the Celtics. He wanted to come to this team. So I think Porzingis is going to work out. If anything, like, obviously, this is, we're not counting health, obviously, right? I mean, not if somebody got hurt, obviously, that's different. But I would say it's Missoula. Like, if they're not utilizing, like, they bring in Porzingis because he's a change of pace. He's a guy that can play in the post. He's a guy that can do different things than anybody the Celtics have had with this Tatum-Jalen Brown core. So if he doesn't utilize Porzingis the way that Porzingis is meant to be utilized, I think it'll be more about the coach than it will be about the player, especially considering you're giving the player an extension. And also, if you look at the bench and we think about this, we want it all to work out. You have two guys here that if Joe doesn't do what he's supposed to do, and I know the Celtics don't want to move on from Joe, right? That Brad loves Joe is you have two guys that are capable of taking over as head coaches. Well, I mean, I guess that's to be determined, but guys that are going to eventually be head coaches in the league. So I think it would be the coach more so than anything else. Do you agree with that? Um, I, I think it depends how you, uh, I don't know, view the question. Because I'd say, what's the most likely reason the Celtics don't play very well next year? I would say it's putting us getting hurt. And I think it's fair to consider that considering he gets hurt all the time, you know? Yeah, the injury history, you're right. Like, and the other portion that you mentioned, Porzingis, Al's old and Rob gets yeah. hurt all the time. So, yeah, it would be the health thing, three, certainly. Three would bigs, hold, yeah, tough. Yeah, the health thing would hold them back. Yeah, all three of your bigs. And even if you look, I mean... Celtics have a lot of injury-prone guys. Brogdon, of course, has dealt with injuries. Now, last year was more of a freak thing than anything else, but he's had a lot of lower extremity issues. Jalen misses time from, uh, time here and there. Like, he's had his injuries throughout his career. The only Tatum and Derek White, those guys are like Ironmen. You know, those guys, yeah. I mean, White played in all 82 games. Tatum plays in pretty much every game. He's against load management. So, I mean, from that perspective, I look at it, and I feel, like, good about those two guys. But everybody else on that team, I mean, I Pritchard, obviously, he's not a health risk, but... Most of these other guys on the team are health risks. So, yeah, that would be the number one thing is health. This is a great, great segue, Brian, to the next question. Okay. Uh, this is from Dan. Dan writes, I love the pod. What are your thoughts about moving Chris Sale into a closer role? At 34 and having all these injuries, it seems unlikely he'll be able to be durable as a starter. Stuff is still filthy and would translate great to a late-inning role. It seems like about the same age that Dennis Eckersley made the transition. Would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so Chris Sale being a closer, totally against it. Chris <laughs> Sale this season has been one of the best starting pitchers in Major League Baseball. And I guess you can say it. It's, well, it's injuries. But there's just no value in having Chris Sale be a one-inning guy. 
right? Or even a two-inning guy. You have plenty of guys that can do that. Just think about this team right now. Jansen is an elite closer still at his age. Chris Martin is an elite relief pitcher. Garrett Whitlock is now back into the bullpen. Schreiber is really good in the bullpen as well. Winkowski has had an outstanding season. So it's much more valuable. Even if you say, hey, you want to be careful with Chris Sale in terms of his innings. Okay, it's much more valuable to get five innings out of Chris Sale than an inning out of Chris Sale. So from my perspective, no, I'm not making Chris Sale a closer. I get the idea because when he first came up, he came out of the bullpen. Not that that was the White Sox long-term plan. I get it. Like, just try to do everything you possibly can to keep keep Chris Sale healthy. But I think at this point, look, the contract's a sunk cost, okay? Like, it's a bad contract. We all acknowledge that. But what we have seen is flashes of greatness. Like, last week, I was at the game last Friday night. The guy was unbelievable. We went through it on the Sunday pod. I mean, that was a dominant performance. And he's going to pitch again, what, on Thursday against the Nationals? I expect him to be dominant in that outing as well. I think the best situation for Chris Sale is to be in the rotation. I mean unfortunately who knows what's going to happen with him he falls off bikes i mean this year he's dealing with the shoulder situation at least the tommy john is in the past like that situation is taking care of itself but no you can't have chris sale be a closer or a bullpen guy he needs to be in the rotation yeah i think maybe maybe you could talk about that in his next contract though i'm sure he'll hate the idea um well his next contract in all likelihood won't be with the red sox i can't imagine it would be I guess the only thing that I think about is just I hear what you're saying. You're right about more value, even doing three innings to start the game, you know, opener kind of thing. But like, is it doing his body harm being a starter still? Like, can he it seems like he literally just can't do it anymore, you know? So maybe if you want him to play the entire season, he can't pitch more than two innings, which is crazy to say. But that's that's what we're seeing every year, right? Yeah, I mean, I hope the shoulder doesn't come back up this season but right now I mean yeah you're right I mean you can't depend on Chris Sale's health I think the bigger issue with that is the Red Sox as a team or as an organization rather and I mentioned this on the Sunday Paul when I referenced the fact they got to go get Blake Snell they can't plan and bank on Chris Sale being their front end guy like they can't plan on that it's fine if he's in your rotation but you can't plan on him being the guy that's out there making 30 starts it just he can't do it at this stage in his career so that's my biggest thing is, and look, this isn't High Bloom's contract, by the way. Dave Dombrowski signed this contract, and I've given Dave Dombrowski a lot of praise, and a lot of this is on the ownership, too. I mean, they basically said that they bung- they alluded to the fact that they bungled the Lester thing, and they didn't want that situation happening again. The reality was Chris Sale, you didn't have to give him the extension after 18. He's still in another year. Prove he's healthy, because remember, at 18, that's when the injury started. He missed basically a month, and then he was really ineffective in the postseason, and I get it, we referenced the 18 team earlier, the Manny Machado strikeout, but my point with that is, like, this is just a situation where you have a contract that you're dealing with, you just can't assume the contract is who the player is. You can't assume that that's a front end of the rotation guy. You have to treat each offseason as if Chris Sale, okay, he's your fourth or fifth starter, right? Now, when he's actually out there, He's a top three starter, right? He's arguably, this year, he's your best starter when he's actually healthy, right? Especially if you look at his last six starts, he's been Mm -hmm. outstanding. But the biggest issue to me is you just have to, you can't bank on the health of Chris Sale, which unfortunately, the Red Sox went into this season banking on the health of Chris Sale, and they were burned by it. All right, Jamie, great stuff, man. Thank you, Brad. All right, remember, if you want to leave us a voicemail, you can at 617-396-7172. You can also email us at offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Sturdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.
Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, hope is here, visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call one 877 8 Hope and Why or text Hope and Why. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.